Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and today the topic is going to be a moral case for a free economy because we are talking with one of my favorite defenders of the free market, Father Robert Sirico, who is the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty and the pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and Academy in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Father Robert Sirico, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you. You are one of the people that I really, really enjoy reading when you publish or, you know, I have your book. And I always want to hear what you have to say about how the economy is worth defending, how a free economy is worth defending. So we're going to, we're going to talk about that. And one of the reasons I like it is that a lot of free market defenders, whether libertarian or just people who want to defend capitalism, tend to make more of a practical case for it. And you yeah. and the Acton Institute make more of a moral, take a more moral approach. And I want to, uh, want to eventually talk about that. But it probably would be a good idea to sort of set the stage with a little personal story of like, how did you become somebody who defends a free market? Because you weren't always in that camp. No, I wasn't. Um, and it's a terribly long story, so I'll try and encapsulate. <laughs> I was a, attracted to the left in the early 70s. And if you remember, that was a very turbulent time. It just come out of 68 and into 70 was the end of the Vietnam War. It was the beginning of the feminist movement, the gay movement. The I was living in California at the time, even though I'm a New Yorker by birth, I was living in California. And the farm workers were very big um, boycott of Gallo wine and grapes. That was a very big empowerment. And so I was involved with various kinds of uh, left-wing movements. Now, I need to be honest and say that I was not an orthodox Marxist. I was um, new left, and uh, really it, it grew out of a, a passion that I had uh, for justice. I, I, I'd seen mm -hmm. justice in the world, you know, growing up in the 50s, I saw uh, the kind of racial prejudice, the bombing of churches, the uh, beating of demonstrators, uh, and also in my own neighborhood, my own neighbor was a survivor of the Holocaust. And so growing up with that and then seeing the world emerge, um, but without a good understanding of how the economy works, I became susceptible to the siren cries of the left, you know, uh, power to mm -hmm. the people and uh, all this kind of thing. And uh, it was about that time that um, I, I tell a story in the book of after a demonstration, I was sitting in a room with a bunch of comrades and we were talking about what was going to happen uh, when the revolution comes. It was after a long day of protests, I recall. And uh, I remember after everybody went around the room, it came to me and they said, what, what are we going to do when the revolution comes? And I said, well, we're all going to shop at Gucci. And uh, <laughs> this shocked 
everyone in the room. And I was shocked that they were shocked. And uh, I turned to my friend, Anne. She's, uh, I always call her my lesbitarian feminist friend. <laughs> she was a Trotskyite. I mean, a, a real member of the SWP. I mean, she was a, a serious Marxist. And she just looked at me and she said, Gucci? And I said, sure. She said, that's bourgeois. Mm. Said, but we want to create a world where people can buy goods and services at affordable prices, that they can have quality things. So I'm using Gucci as a, a, as a metaphor of luxury, accessible mm -hmm. people. And she just shook her head and she said, you're, you, you're not a real socialist. And um, I've often remarked that there's nothing more uncomfortable in life than having someone tell you something about yourself that you don't yet know. Mm. And I didn't know it at the time, but once I met someone else about this period of time who gave me some books to read, I began to have over about a six-month period of time, the, uh, the lights began to go up in the auditorium <laughs> and I could see where things were placed. Whereas before I kind of just bumped into things out of emotion and um, instinct. And it was reading those books uh, that clarified in my mind uh, the importance of human freedom, especially as expressed in the, in the economy, for people to have these luxury resources mm -hmm. at their disposal. Because things we consider commonplace today were, were luxury items. It's something as simple as socks and shoes. They're ubiquitous today. But, you know... Two, three centuries ago, those were luxury items. Yeah. Yeah, I was just recently listening to an audiobook about uh, liquid, uh, and it was all kinds of different things. And one of the liquids was ink and talking about the ballpoint pen and how, you know, yes. at some point in the past, it was, it was a luxury to have the... Um, it was like carrying around a cell phone in the late 80s, early 90s. You were important yes. if you had an, an ink pen. Right. Uh, because you had the occasion to need to write something at any time and you were important. Right. <laughs> and now we we don't even, if someone steals your ink pen, you're just kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, it's like common property, right? Well, and you know, and the reverse is true too. Think of it, how, how now um, luxury is writing with a fountain pen. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, or luxury isn't going out to eat anymore because everybody can go to a McDonald's. Luxury is having a dinner at home. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it you know your your line about Gucci is is a nice stand-in for the luxury that you wanted for everyone. I mean, did she not think that everybody should have quality goods? I mean, is that really what she didn't want? No, if you had asked her that question, she would have said of course. Mm -hmm. But then she said probably because there's a whole aesthetic to Marxism, right? Right. It, yeah. It's kind of even if you have to spend five hundred dollars for a pair of torn jeans, uh, you want them torn. <laughs> you want them faded. You know, there's a, mm. there's an aesthetic to it that makes you look like one of the workers. Without thinking, uh, how can we upgrade the whole lifestyle of workers? Which, of course, the market has done. I mean, there is no central planning office for the provision of shoes and socks. Yeah. And ballpoint pens. We don't need it because the market's provided all of that. 
So your your journey, you mentioned a little bit out of the Marxist way of thinking because somebody gave you some books and things. Between that and you know founding the Acton Institute, where 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 did that lead you? There was there was this other little question <laughs> in the back of my head from my growing up in a Catholic home, and then at this point where I'm describing uh, almost becoming uh, an agnostic and atheist. Uh, from reading and arguments and things like that with friends, uh, there was the God question. And oddly enough, once I began to think in a systematic way about the economy, I found myself thinking in a systematic way uh, about the nature of human beings, that is anthropology. And when I began to think about that, I began to think about more metaphysical questions, more spiritual questions. Why am I here? How did I get here? What's my destiny? What gives my life a sense of purpose and meaning? And it was then that uh, I bumped back into God. Uh, My initial experience was um, intensely spiritual, but brief. Uh, I wouldn't call it mystical, but I would call it bordering on the mystical. That is, I, I knew something that was not the result of my conscious set of syllogisms to which I acquiesced. It was rather uh, almost infused knowledge. I just knew that there was a God and uh, reconverted to to the faith that I was raised in. I went to confession to, uh, uh, oddly enough, a libertarian priest, somebody had introduced me to, a Jesuit. (laughs) Jesuits have all kinds, all stripes. And uh, this guy was a philosopher at Fordham University. Father James Sadowski was his name. And uh, I was just supposed to meet him to show him around town. And uh, I went to confession after 13 years. And I I remember him sitting there at my dining room table before we went out to dinner. And I said, could you hear my confession? He looked at his watch. (laughs) And I said, it's been 13 years since my last confession. And he was not a pastor, you know, he was a professor. So I think it was unusual for him to just kind of Mm -hmm. experience this kind of thing. But in any event, he absolved me and I began the reassimilation of my faith. And then, of course, I had to do these two things. How how does one come back to a church? This was in the uh, mid-1970s. And the church had gone through, in the previous decade, had gone through an incredible revolution of liturgy and aesthetics and politics even, because what had emerged was liberation theology. Of course, having been outside the church, I wasn't particularly aware of all this stuff. And then when I came back, I was confronted with it. And I was confronted with it both having adopted a freedom philosophy, but also having readopted my Catholic faith. So Mm. phase of this story is the integration between these two things. Yeah. So as you as you integrated that, I mean, your your journey is a little like mine, not quite, but in that you were fond of things like justice and you wanted like you could see that there's needs in society out there. And, you know, there is there's a way to understand the way the world works that is not Marxist, that is not conditioned by Marxist you know, way of thinking. And the way in which you approach that as you reenter your Christian faith, that must have been like a lot to handle, or I, I, maybe that's not the right way to put it, but that, that's a lot to sort of like have on both ends of things. Well, it required a lot of reading <laughs> and <laughs> conversation. 
And in these years, because this didn't happen overnight, you know, the conversion to a free market from the left took six months. But after that, you know, I finished college. I, I went to college late. And after that, I went to, to seminary. And it was in seminary that I really began to do some mm-hmm. serious reading on theology, philosophy, uh, and economics. And um, the problem at that time was liberation theology, which for your listeners who may not know, was an, the attempt essentially to baptize Karl Marx. It was a, an attempt to kind of take a Marxist social analysis and read it through a theological lens. And uh, I was up against that, which turns out was a good foil because it gave me some some real issues. They raised basic issues about economy, about capitalism mm-hmm. and things like that. And I was in an academic setting because I was in seminary and I had some pretty good professors uh, with whom I could have conversations and sometimes debates, which sharpened my own thinking. And uh, that's how I began to make this integration. And I would call that the um, the beginnings of the idea of the Acton Institute. Um, you know, this this I had this plan, this question planned for a little bit later when we talk about directly the morality of markets. But I, I wonder, I grew up Protestant and I remain a Protestant. And so my... Uh, initiation or transition to a free market view, which I was always pretty much, you know, v- you know, nominally a free market person, that came with all of the assumptions that I had as a Protestant. And so, one question that I have is: In what ways does having a Catholic faith, as opposed to a non-Catholic Christian faith, how does that? How do you defend the market different from how other Christians might? I mean, is there something unique or is there sort of an, I want to call it an angle, but I think you get where I'm asking the question. Yes, no, I I do. I I think uh, in the Protestant, at least in the traditional reform tradition, you have sola scriptura, right? So everything goes back to the Bible. Uh, Where do I find a verse that defends human liberty? Where do I find a verse that defends private property? Things like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Catholicism uh, predates the Bible, (laughs) Uh, in the sense that Christianity predates the Bible, right? Christianity, mm-hmm. the church, existed before the canon of scriptures, which were only canonized in about the 4th century at the Council of Hippo. So when Catholics tend to ask questions, uh, it's not to say that the Bible isn't an authority, and a normative authority, but it's seen in context with the authority of the church, the magisterium of the teaching office of the church, and the whole history of the church, what we call tradition. Mm -hmm. And so it's these three pillars that kind of interact with each other. And those are the, that's what I had to ask, you know, what is there in the Catholic tradition that would defend this? And I'd have to begin with human freedom, the mystery uh, that God who is sovereign, creates us free. And the responsibility, in fact, the necessity in making any uh, moral decision, in performing any moral act, that volition is required. You can't uh, perform a virtuous act without doing it freely. And I could walk you through the uh, gestures of a moral act 
and you would receive no no grace from it if you didn't choose it. Mm-hmm. I just forced you to do it. I forced you to feed the poor, and the poor are fed. Well, the poor may be benefited by that, but spiritually, if you've been forced to do it, there's no grace to you. If I give my body to be burned and have not love, uh, I have, you know, founding yeah. brass and a tinkling cymbal, St. Paul says. Yeah. Well, and I like to add that if, you know, the rich can certainly be, their wealth can be redistributed to help the poor, but the vision of social justice that's, you know, right. could be truly biblical is that the rich and the poor can dine together and yes. then they can take communion together. They can be together in a wholesome relationship, not just, oh, well, I have too much money and too much time, so I'll just pay a little bit in taxes or whatever and and so that they're fed. I mean, obviously, we don't want to discount the fact that people being fed is important, but... Right. I think I think you're touching on a, a, another very important uh, point that differentiates at least Marxism from uh, Christianity, and that is this notion of whether... Our vision of society is essentially conflictual or essentially harmonious. In the Christian eschatology, it's harmony. And Bastiat wrote a whole book on this, economic harmonies, how, how we can become reciprocal, how can, there can be a, a win-win situation in society. In Marxism, it's conflictual. There's class struggle, class warfare. And, you know, I think it was uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta who said, you know, we we don't claim the right to condemn the rich. We don't believe in class struggle. We believe in class encounter, where the rich save the poor and the poor save the rich. In this, I think she has more economic insight than than most economists. Mm. Yeah, I, I really like that. So I, I want to stick with the, uh, the Catholic question theme here for a second and just kind of get, how do you... Get, get your take on the current Pope, Pope Francis. And mm-hmm. I don't need like, you know, I don't need a scathing review or anything. I'm not looking for anything in particular, but just like, I know that there has been a shift as, you know, just watching world events, watching statements being made over the last several years. It seems to be a shift away from more endorsement or more acceptance of freer markets. Um, yeah. And so obviously you probably have to balance that in some fashion with your your roles. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I have to balance it intellectually, and then I also have to balance it, uh, how should we say, relationally. So relationally, let me just put it in this sense. My dad, you know, is a New Yorker, Brooklyn, working class kind of guy, and he expressed his opinions on all kinds of things, as you can imagine. My my dad was the original Archie Bunker. (laughs) A number of times, uh, he would say something, and I would disagree with him, and I hope that I was always respectful in my disagreement with him. I loved him, uh, but I didn't agree with him. And relationally, that's my feeling about this Pope. Uh, he is, the, in my theological estimation, the successor of Christ. Uh, he possesses certain authority, not um, complete. You know, the, the Lord Act mm-hmm. quote that everybody is uh, fond of. <laughs> Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely was not directed at politicians. It was directed at the Pope. So, I mean, this tension of, uh, and limitation of papal authority is something that goes back in our traditional long way. So relationally, I have to kind of negotiate that. Uh, but intellectually, 
the Pope's authority, you know, people immediately say, oh, you believe he's infallible. Well, I don't think if he tells me it's going to rain tomorrow and it, it doesn't look like it's going to rain that I have to believe him. Uh, his authority his, is what we call the charism, the gift of infallibility given to Peter and his successors, is limited to morals and uh, doctrine. So that his speculations on science or art or economics is just that. You know, he has to produce the argument. Uh, and when I look at what he says about the economy, just on the economy, or what the assertions he makes about history, I have to say he's just mistaken. And... Uh, I think in large part, uh, trying to be sympathetic and, and having held views similar to his at one point, I think it comes from his experience in Argentina in seeing um, the, the idea of a successful businessman was a crony capitalist. It was somebody who mm -hmm. made their uh, way in the world by... Um, utilizing political apparatuses and inhibiting their own competitors and various other things like this. Uh, whereas John Paul II, uh, who grew up under both communism and Nazism, uh, emerges with a very different view of how the economy mm -hmm. can function. Uh, and so that's where you get a lot of these very pro-market ideas in, in John Paul II's pontificate. Yeah. I think okay. it would be a corrective at some point to Francis uh, on, on a number of different levels. I, I think you're dealing here with a man who isn't um, intellectually very sophisticated. He may be mm. a good man in his heart. I don't know him personally. I've met him, but I, I don't really know him. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. No, no scathing reviews, just maturity. No, no, that's... That's all good. Uh, so I, I do want to talk a little bit about... Um, the the Acton Institute with you from a really high level you know high altitude way of looking at things. I mean, you have done. I mean, if the Libertarian Christian Institute can have the influence that the Acton Institute has, you know, when we're your age, you know, you're looking at what you're 30 years now, right? Yes. There, there's yes. a lot of a lot of influence over the decades, uh, and we have very similar missions, very similar alignments uh, with respect to you know free markets our moral compass is set in the same direction, yes. you know, as organizations. And so tell us a little bit about sort of what Acton's mission is and sort of the main pillars uh, of how do you accomplish that? How are you accomplishing that? Well, anyone who wants to really study that can go to our, our website. We have our principles articulated there. They're really laid out in, in I think, uh, rather uh, cogent fashion. Uh, basically, what we're trying to do is fill in the gap where where people have good intentions about economy, uh, but don't have good knowledge, <laughs> uh, don't have practical understanding about how an economy works. So one of the first things we want to do is fill in the gap of people's understanding. And we do this uh, with a real awareness that economics as such emerges from the discipline of uh, moral theology, historically speaking. I, I was speaking at the Mount Pelerin Society once, uh, giving a paper, and uh, Jim Buchanan, 
was there, a Nobel laureate, uh, Virginia School Public Choice Theory. A congenial man, I always had a good relationship with him. Uh, but at the end of my lecture, in the Q&A, he got up, he said, Father Sirico, we're glad to welcome you to the discipline of economics. But why don't you just leave your religion out of it? And I said, uh, Dr. Buchanan, um, thank you very much, but I think you've forgotten something historically. Uh, economics itself emerges from the scholastics, from the school of Salamanca. Uh, so uh, in effect, I am welcoming you economists to my discipline, theology, because you're contemplating the, the moral acts in the first place, the moral acts of individuals in the economic sphere. You've got, I mean, Rothbard has this whole uh, survey of the scholastics and how they anticipate the Austrian school. So um, that's a lot of what we're trying to do, make, make an integration, not trying to ideologize the gospel at all, but help religious leaders, uh, now in terms of our mission, help religious leaders understand um, the moral potential of a market economy, that while it is important uh, and necessary to have human freedom, human economic freedom in order to have prosperity, that's not enough. That's not sufficient. We, we need something more in our understanding. You can create a free society that is not a good society. And that's what we're trying to do. This is where we, we go beyond what heritage or Cato or other groups do. We want to help people understand that these are two parts of the human reality, that we are both corporeal, physical, and transcendent. And that if we don't take into consideration these two dimensions of the human reality, whatever society we're going to build, whether it's a theocracy or a, um, a libertine society, uh, that will be inadequate. Mm. Well, I like I like hearing what you have to say there. Uh, you know, obviously, I align with 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 everything you say in that, especially in that. You know, it does mean that we can have a free society and not a good society. Yeah, um, I know that there might be libertarians who disagree with that. That like without some bent toward goodness, we wouldn't end up with a free society. You know, if we ever do. True. True. So this, this might be a good time to discuss the term libertarian a little bit because yes. we align in so much and you've, you've mentioned to me that you're not terribly fond of the term libertarianism no. or libertarian and I can understand possibly why, but I would love to hear a little bit more because maybe, maybe libertarians need to <laughs> rethink the reputation and what it means. I don't sure. know. So sure. I'll just give you a chance to, to answer that. Well, Doug, I feel now like the person who's been invited to someone's home for dinner and tells the host <laughs> that uh, he doesn't like um, whatever, lobster third. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't describe myself generally as a libertarian unless I'm with friends who understand what I mean by that. Because I think mm -hmm. in common parlance, when you say libertarian, there are several uh, images that come to mind. Um, you know, in fact, because this is a libertarian audience, let me recount, people will remember, uh, when Ron Paul was running for president and uh, he was on the debate stage and the, I guess one of the journalists asks, uh, what would you do with a person who doesn't have private insurance? 
uh, would you let him die on the street? And there were a lot of libertarians in the audience because of Ron Paul. And people began yelling, yeah, let him die. Mm, I remember that. It's a kind of <laughs> libertarian, you know, instinct to, to respond like that without thinking more holistically. Not just politically. I'm not just talking about the embarrassment of that to an audience. But is that really what you want? Is that the kind of society you want? To yeah, right. So uh, I think that the term libertarian has been stolen uh, in effect, because to, to think, if you look at older uses of the word libertarian, it, it means something more general about the importance of liberty in mm -hmm. social questions, or uh, to use Acton's phrase, though, of course, the word, to my knowledge, wasn't extant in the, in the Victorian era. He said that uh, freedom is the, or liberty is the political end of man that the purpose of politics is to ensure for liberty and that liberty is the necessary prerequisite for virtue, that, that people have to at least interiorly choose things freely. The word libertarian, yeah. I think, means uh, – I don't want to spend my time defining a word or, or being seen oh, sure. as sectarian. You know? uh, yeah. I, the other problem with the word libertarian is it's seen as a kind of crazed sect – uh, of people, and, uh, libertarians have to own this. You, we all know the libertarian uh, um, flasher, right? They, they go to a uh, party, and uh, their idea of spicing up the, the discussion is to proclaim, you know, drug legalization first thing, you know, in some some white haired lady's home. Or I remember I was once at a, a gathering of academics, and there were some people who were kind of marginally conservative, marginally libertarian, but they ran into this libertarian buzzsaw who immediately began to make the argument about uh, the liberty of people to make um, nuclear weapons in their basements, uh, the basement of their home. That yeah. Kind of thing. I mean, yeah. is this is this what we're talking <laughs> about when we talk about libertarian? Well, right. some of you will say, yeah, that's what we're talking about. I, well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the general thrust that society advances when it sees liberty as a central feature of that society. By the way, the other word I don't like very much is the word capitalism. Aside from being a Marxist word, uh, it's too narrow a word. Uh, it concentrates on capital rather than a free economy. And so, I, mm -hmm. you know, when, when we speak about a free economy or a liberal society, a classically liberal, liberal is another one of those words, you know, it floats. I, I refuse to let the progressive left own that word. No, no, I, I, <laughs> me too. I describe myself as a liberal, sometimes a classic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I find myself attitudinally being that way. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. generally hostile, I mean, viscerally hostile, despite being a New Yorker, uh, to people who disagree. You know, I, I like to have different points of view, and it's always much more interesting that way. So, yeah, yeah I, 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 I find the word libertarian problematic. It seems like it has a cultural stigma yeah. that is repulsive to people who already aren't predisposed to even align with us uh, on our, you know, our moral moral and uh, practical case for free economy. Uh, but even even for everybody else, it's like it... And honestly, 
you know, now that now that you're, you're the way that you're saying all that, I'm just like, well, man, everything has become culture about cultural identity in the last ten years. Yeah, no, no, you you know, and it's like, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to identify as you know this collective, and right. you know, I you know, admittedly have a little bit of like, I'm a libertarian. That's part of who I am now. You know, it's like a self-identity thing and it becomes a little bit of a cultural uh, flavor to it. And there's a stigma or baggage or however you want to put it. Yeah, I think the stigma, you know, probably relates to Rand, Tyan Rand, who oddly enough denounced the word, (laughs) didn't like libertarians, (laughs) saw them as intellectual bloodsuckers or parasites or whatever she said. Yeah. Um, and I think when people see the kind of anger and meanness in Rand, in her attitude, harshness, that it's repulsive. You know, uh, this is a woman, you know, you could watch some of her old interviews, uh, and much of what she says you'd, you'd agree with, but it's frankly, it's kind of like Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I want to duck every time he says something, even if I'm agreeing with what he says. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I said at the beginning of this episode, we were going to talk about a moral case for a free economy and we've, we've sort of maneuvered around it a little bit. So I, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about that. And one of the reasons that I think that I agree with you about the word capitalism even though I still continue to use it, I think it's worth explaining the difference, is the word consumerism sort of gets attached to it in most people's popular mindset, is that when people think of capitalism, they think of consumerism. They don't think of the things that I know the Acton Institute is very much about, which is things like stewardship and entrepreneurship. Like Those things are not exactly the virtues, if I can use that word, that people think of when they think of capitalism. They think right. of just endless consumption. And, you know, in your book, Defending the Market, the Free Market, you talk a little bit about consumerism and why that's not capitalism. Right. I mean, of course, people have to consume, right? <laughs> that's that's cool. Right. <laughs> among, among other things. Um, but consumerism becomes the, uh, the be-all and end-all of existence so or of the in this case the the economic system and it isn't it's i think it's much more creativity i think it's much more problem solving the result of that is when it has the institution of private property and the rule of law surrounding it the result of that becomes prosperity and the ability to consume you know to have things at your disposal that you might not otherwise have had and um I think to go to the moral core of a free economy is to go back to the original thing that that we started talking about, and that's anthropology, who human beings are. And it seems to me this is the kind of moral core of the thing. Human beings are, as I said, um, a composite of uh, heaven and earth. God forms man from the dust of the ground and breathes into him the breath of life. So there's the physical and the spiritual that's part of it. That's one dimension of who we are. The other dimension of who we are is that we are individual. There's another word, by the way, individualism. We are individual. We are biologically distinct from our mothers, even in the womb. We're part of her. You know, we exist within her, but we're not physiologically a part of her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the whole of our lives after that 
is the playing out of this individual and social reality. So these two categories of individual and and social and physical and spiritual form the basis of an anthropology that I think are best protected and accounted for by uh, uh, a regime that protects private property, that allows people to live in a maximally free way, according to their own consciences, and that our destiny is held within our own hands. And rather than taken out of our hands and defined for us by politics, it's the whole notion, too, that society, you know, I mean, we're seeing this right now in this historical period in the United States. Everything is political. Even disease has become political. Mm. This is because of the overarching prerogatives that have been taken by the state, that they can tell us what to eat, what kind of food to eat, where we can eat, under what circumstances we can entertain, uh, what we wear. And mm. Down the line, everything, including our medicine and the, the research into our uh, drugs, controlled by the state. So when you have a pandemic, of course it's going to be politicized because it's been yeah. politicized. Yeah, it it's it shouldn't be a surprise to people how the how 2020 has shaped up to be overly politicized or just politicized uh, because it's been leading this way. And people, people yeah. like you and I have sort of sort of seen it coming, and now there's occasion to see people grasping for power. Yeah, you know, I lament the most that the people who are in in my you know sort of Facebook circle of friends that are more on the left. Uh, the thing that I lament the most is that they seem to have this sort of, I, I want people to, like their attitude seems to be, ah, now we have finally have a chance based in science, what, you know, how their understanding of it, that we can tell other people what to do. Yeah. Like there's an, there's an opportunity for sub, subjugation, even if it's temporary. You know, no one ad, would admit that, that, that governor should have this, you know, perpetual power, except maybe the governors themselves. <laughs> but it just seems, yeah, that's the thing I lament the most is that the the, the average person is just, oh, they're so happy that the their democratic governor is telling, you know, other conservatives that they don't like what to do and where to, what and all the things you just mentioned. Um, and it, it's really sad because it doesn't, it doesn't bring us together. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And and what it does more more specifically is like the overarching power of government in general, is it? it's predicated on a pretense to knowledge. You know, mm, yep. if we're going to learn anything about the science of this pandemic or this particular disease, we're going to do it because people are free to engage the facts. And engaging the facts, especially when they're not centralized, when the study of that is not centralized, means competition. And when the government... Or kept, or kept private. Or, or kept private you know, isolated, monopolized. Uh, yeah. when, when you have a free society of competing ideas and debates that are going on and even experiments where people, you know, uh, will live differently in different circumstances and different locales, we learn from that. I mean, it doesn't take very long. This is a brutal example, but it doesn't take very long for uh, addicts on the street to know that there's bad heroin on the street. They, they don't get an FDA uh, seal of approval on their next shot, right? Mm -hmm. They learn it because they're free. Somebody's been free to make the mistakes. Now, that's, that is brutal, as I say. 
But that's reality. And, and ignoring that reality uh, results in even more deaths by, by centralizing and pretending to know and then having to defend what you have defended. And that's the situation you get into. Well, I, I have a million other questions that we could keep talking about and topics and stuff. And sure. uh, when this, when all of the, you know, the, when the pandemic is over, I hope to visit Acton at some point and maybe we'll be able to sit down and, and discuss some of these or maybe I'll have you back on the, uh, the podcast. I would, I would enjoy that because, you know, uh, I, you can imagine I do a lot of these kinds of interviews and stuff, but usually it's having to begin at a very different place than where we began. You know? ah. And uh, so it's refreshing to kind of have a conversation, not just with someone who, who agrees with a good deal of what I sure. already made some of these integrations, but, you know, just somebody who, who is reasonable, not afraid of, of argument. Mm. Yeah, well, good. I'm really glad to have you on. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.